So we've got most of the way through Acts chapter 13, where Paul is at the city in Antioch. And the first Shabbat he's there, he goes to the synagogue, as he always does. And they ask him, you have a word for us? And he then gives an explanation of why Yeshua is the Messiah. And he does that from the Psalms. Basically, the same thing that Yeshua did, where the Lord said to my Lord kind of thing. You are my son, today I have begotten you, and so forth. Showing that that can't be David, because David saw corruption and the Messiah did not see corruption. They go out of the synagogue, and the audience in the synagogue is Jews and seekers. Of course, one of the things that happens as the synagogues are scattered all over the Mediterranean, you've got a number of groups of people that show up at the synagogue. So group one, of course, is Jews. And group two is people who want to become Jews or proselytes. Then you have, and this tends to be women, upper class women who are dilettantes. Ooh, we have a new religion here. I'm going to go over and study this religion so I can talk about it at cocktail parties and not really seeking God per se, but it's just sort of a cool, fashionable social thing to do, to go to the synagogue and be able to talk about Judaism, you know, like people do in Boulder about Buddhism. And, and at the end of his explanation, he's followed out of the synagogue by a crowd, both Jews and Gentiles. And they are very, very excited, and they ask him to come back the next Shabbat. And that's where we pick it up. Let's pick it up in verse 42. So Acts 13, 42. This is on that first Shabbat. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So, obviously, between the first Sabbath and the next one, uh, word has spread that these guys from Jerusalem have come and they're talking about something new. And some of them are there because of the idea that, wow, this God will even accept Gentiles and this God will forgive our sins and all of the reasons that Christians come to God. There are also people there that this is kind of a good show. We'll go listen to this. But the point is, they've got pretty much everybody there. Verse 45, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And I believe that's a quote from Isaiah, Isaiah 49, and verse 6. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So these are the ladies that I was talking about. These are Gentile women. 
They are wives of prominent people. In other words, they're in the upper crust. And going to the synagogue is, again, one of the things that they do. And again, I'm not saying that none of these people believed. They may, in fact, have believed. But they got there because that's sort of what you do as a prominent woman in that society. And it's the same in any society, quite frankly. So anyway, the Jews get them stirred up. So they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So where they are is in what is now central Turkey. They will plant a number of churches there. Chapter 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, one of the things to understand, and this is perfectly normal, is if somebody came in to this church and started preaching something that Ray and I found objectionable, and we started speaking against it, in a situation like this where everybody doesn't have his own Bible and doesn't have interlinear Bible with concordances and can sit down there and check themselves, they tend to listen to their leaders, which is perfectly normal. So the idea that the leaders of these synagogues are saying that these guys are preaching some other religion, it is perfectly natural that a lot of their congregants would believe them. Verse 3, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews, and some with the apostles. After an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews, with their rulers, to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycodia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So again, this is this series of churches that they established in, in central Turkey, which of course was then known as Asia, which is a province of Rome. Verse 8. Now in Lystra there was a man who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand up right on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, singing in Lycodian, their language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas was called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Verse 13. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So the local priests sees that you got a guy working miracles. Everybody's saying that this is one of the gods come down. The local priest wants to get on the action. Verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them which I suppose probably made them an enemy of the priest of Zeus. I think they've pretty much got 
most of the power structure in the town against him at this point. Verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. Good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. And again, you all know that paganism tends to have bureaucratic gods. So you've got a god of rain, and you've got a god of the harvest, and you've got a god of war, and you've got a god for every purpose. And what these guys are doing is saying, God, Jehovah, our God, has let you all go off and do whatever you want, and he is the one who has been doing all these things that you have been attributing to bureaucrats. And so I'm suggesting that he's not making any friends with the pagan priesthood, just as he is not making any friends with the Jewish hierarchy in the tabernacle. Verse 19, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So Paul has started off at Antioch in Pisidia, which is in central Turkey, and he's going from city to city, and he's dragging behind him a comet tail of angry, non-Messianic Jews. And they all fetch up and convince people that these guys ought to be stoned for apostasy. They do stone him. Verse 19 again. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowd, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. I am of the opinion, and this is Johnnyology, that they actually did kill him. I think he got raised from the dead. But that's Johnnyology. Scripture says what the Scripture says. But it's sort of like one of the canards that gets occasionally spoken against Yeshua is that he wasn't really dead. He was just mostly dead. And they threw him into a crypt and his disciples came and they paid the guards to spread that rumor. That is, I'm going to suggest that the Romans who supervised crucifixions and the Jews who supervised stonings knew when somebody was dead. The idea that he was just mostly dead and revived may be the case. But the other thing is you have open miracles that are following these people. And so I don't find any problem whatsoever that they, in fact, nailed him dead and he was raised from the dead on the spot. And again, it's not scriptural. It's just that's what I think. And you don't have to think that at all. It's okay. Think whatever you like. So verse 19 again. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So I think the order here is they head north, and they turn around and came back to the same cities heading south. So they're going right back through the 
guys that just incited a mob to stone him, which is courageous. So 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atala, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. I said last time there's two Antiochs. There's an Antioch in Syria, and then there's Pisidian Antioch in the middle of Turkey. So they went from Pisidian Antioch down to the coast of Turkey, sailed around down to the coast of Syria, and then now they're back in Antioch in Syria. Different Antioch. So 27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And there remained no little time with the disciples. So having made the trip, gotten stoned, they're back where they got sent off from. Chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is the same question, obviously, that lights off the letter to the Galatians. Because Paul, as he's planting these churches, says nothing about having to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. He is simply depending on the witness of the Holy Spirit. So as he goes and preaches the gospel, Gentiles get the Holy Spirit. And as far as Paul is concerned, if they've got the Holy Spirit, that means God's approved them and everything's fine. Following up behind him are people of the circumcision party. They are going through these churches that he has planted, and they're saying, yeah, 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 I know what this guy Paul said, but we're from the home office, and let us tell you what you really need to do. We'll stop. Having said that, if they were going through there with the purpose of discipling these people, that would be one thing. But what they're doing is they're sowing confusion and they're sowing doubt that what they got through the agency of Paul is not the real deal. Just like you all have come out of the Sunday church and you were in here and what we're trying to do is study Torah, become disciples, understand what the Torah would have of us and do the things that God would have us do as best we can. Had that been the mission of these Jews, that would have been a good thing. But instead, what they've said is, no, it doesn't count unless you get circumcised and follow the law of Moses. This vignette will be the subject of the letter to the Galatians. And it's also the subject of the Council of Jerusalem. Verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. By the way, have I done up and down, left and right, backward and front with you guys? Biblical directions are different. Jerusalem is the center. You have right and left. So when we would say north, what they would say is left or down. And everything is down from Jerusalem. So when they're going south, starting in Antioch, which is north of Jerusalem, they are headed south. What it says is they go up to Jerusalem. We would say they go down to Jerusalem because they'll be going south. The directions are Jerusalem-centered, forward is east, backward is west, left is north, and right is south. And, and the words are interchangeable. You just have to know what you're talking about to get 
what is being talked about. So some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So you've got these guys from the home office who show up in Antioch, and they're arguing with Paul about whether or not Gentiles need to be circumcised and keep the Torah. And there's this heated discussion that goes on, and they finally say, fine, let's all go back to Jerusalem and we'll settle it. Remember, the last time this happened, Paul got stoned because he's up in central Turkey and he's preaching the gospel and so forth, and the non-believing Jews come up and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, this guy is teaching stuff that isn't right, and they get him stoned. So you got sort of a replay, except nobody gets stoned in this case, but it's the same religious argument. Except the Jews coming up from Judea are Messianic Jews. Whereas the ones in the synagogue up north that got him stoned are not Messianic Jews. Verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So these are former Pharisees. They are believers. They are Messianic Jews, but they came out of the Pharisee party. So obviously the dispute here is what does it take to be considered saved and what does it take to be part of the kingdom of God? So verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. And of course, you all remember that Abraham, before he was circumcised, had faith in God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So the covenant of circumcision came after Abraham was, in the Baptist sense, saved. So all they're doing is repeating the Torah here. So having cleansed their hearts by faith, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing the yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Yeshua Messiah, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, Listen to me. All right, now before we get into James and his decision, in order to completely understand this, you've got to go back to Cornelius. We just did this a couple weeks ago. It should be fresh in your minds. But the deal with Cornelius is Cornelius is praying, and he gets a vision. And the angel messenger says, send somebody north and get this guy Peter and have him come down and talk to you. At the same time, Peter is up north, and he's missing lunch. He's hungry and he wants to get fed, so while they're cooking lunch, he's up on the roof and he gets the vision of the sheet that comes down. And the message is, Peter, 
arise, kill, and eat. And it's got lizards and horny toads and eels and all sorts of stuff that a Jew would not eat. And he, of course, says, no, I've never eaten anything unclean or common in my life. And the message is, what I have called clean, don't you call common. So then the guys show up to take him down to Cornelius' house. He gets down to Cornelius' house, and Peter says to Cornelius, you know that it's unlawful for a Jew to enter the house of a Gentile. But I have been shown that it's okay. He preaches the gospel, and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, which just absolutely flabbergasts everybody because that's nothing they were expecting. And what Peter then says is, ah, now I understand what the meaning of the sheep vision was. It's not that I am supposed to start eating bacon. It's that people who do eat bacon are not disqualified from being in the kingdom of God. And from that, this is now Johnnyology, I infer that the diet that God has got the Jews on has to do with their special calling, that they are a nation of priests. And as a nation of priests, they have to be going into the temple and being in the presence of God as a representative both to and from the nations to God, an emissary between God and the nations. Because of that mission, he's got them on a special diet. But that doesn't mean that your Baptist friend down the street who has bacon cheeseburgers is in any way sinful. What he's declaring is that Gentiles may come into the kingdom of God and bacon breath does not disqualify them for that. And what the argument in front of the council in Jerusalem is, what about circumcision? And circumcision, I think, follows the same logic. For a Jew, circumcision is required. So what the argument here at the Council of Jerusalem is, is, wait a minute, guys. Here we got all these Gentiles that God has approved by the sign of them receiving the Holy Spirit. So God has declared that these people are in the kingdom of God. God has declared that they are approved. He did it without regard to their diet, hence Cornelius, and he is also doing it without regard to their state of circumcision. And so the deal here is, what do we tell these new Gentiles is their requirement? And then we're going to get James's answer. But the argument is the same with bacon breath or circumcision. As you come into the kingdom of God, you are not disqualified for either of those two things. The circumcision question will come up with Titus and Timothy. And Titus is a Gentile, and Timothy is the son of a Jewish mother. When Paul runs across these two young men, he does not circumcise Titus, but he does circumcise Timothy, because Timothy is ethnically a Jew. Titus is ethnically not a Jew. So Paul is not against circumcision. Paul simply is of the opinion that circumcision is part of the covenant. And in order to be in the covenant, if you are a Jew, you have to be circumcised. That isn't to say that you have to be circumcised in order to be in the kingdom of God, which is the argument here at the Council of Jerusalem. So you need not harass your bacon-eating brethren. It is not a kingdom of God issue.
And the other half of that is it's not done away with by the sacrifice of Yeshua. Just as circumcision is not done away with by the sacrifice of Yeshua. For the people who are commanded to eat the special diet and the people who are commanded to circumcise, those commandments remain in force. And if you want to join that company, you can, and then there's a right to have you do that. But it has nothing to do with salvation or entrance into the kingdom of God. Verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and rebuild its ruin. And I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And that is Amos chapter 9, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, the way I have always heard this taught, and as far as I know it's correct, what you're talking about here is sort of the minimum behavioral standards to have table fellowship in a Jewish community. And the idea is that the synagogues are where the books are. So these newly converted Gentiles need to get into the synagogue so that they can hear the words of Moses and the prophets taught. And again, I know of no preacher in the world who would say, all right, say the sinner's prayer, you're saved, now beat it. No, he would want you to come into the church, he would get you a Bible, he would want you to start studying the Word of God. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that goes along with crossing over from the realm of death into the realm of life. So the idea that these Gentiles have crossed over and have received the Holy Spirit that doesn't mean that they don't need to get someplace where they can hear the word of God, and that's the synagogue. And in order to do that, those are sort of the minimum requirements. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Because remember, Antioch is where the confusion is. So we're sending them back now with a letter from us. This is Antioch in Syria. So they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading the men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, and Syria and Silesia greetings. So this is a letter to Gentiles. 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave no instructions. In other words, these guys are freelancers. We didn't send them out. Although we gave no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Yeshua Messiah. So remember the herky-jerky that's going on. These guys have been teaching you false doctrine, is what the circumcision party has been saying. And what they're going back is, no, 
these guys have risked their lives for the gospel. They are our brothers. They are correct. So this is all by way of building Paul and Barnabas up. 27. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So short and sweet. Having said that, there's some ambiguity in there. Food sacrificed to idols, that's straightforward. Paul will have a letter on that in Corinthians, and the deal there is, if you know it's been sacrificed to idols, don't eat it. If somebody serves you food, you do not have to ask for the sake of conscience whether it has been sacrificed to an idol. And it's my understanding that in the marketplace, you had animal sacrifices all the time, and the sacrificed carcasses then showed up at the butcher shop. So they got eaten. And I would imagine, I don't know this, it's a guess on my part, but the butcher, as he's standing there with his plate of ribs or whatever it is, saying, this was just sacrificed this morning, as in that would probably be a selling point. But that's a guess on my part. So from blood, that's the thing that's ambiguous, because there are lots and lots of prohibitions with respect to blood in the Torah. There are prohibitions against eating blood. There are prohibitions against associating with a woman while she is in her menses. So there's all sorts of stuff in the Torah about blood, and I'm not sure what's being spoken of here. I suspect it's probably food, but I don't know that. I've said in the past, one of the things about a Jewish community is they're very conscious of that because a priest who has to go into the temple of the tabernacle cannot be defiled, and someone who has an open discharge or a woman in her menses is communicable, as communicable to mine. So if she touches a priest, or a priest sits on a bed she's been on, or something like that, he becomes defiled, and he has to then get himself cleaned up before he can go in and, and do his temple service. The problem is, he may not know it, because I can imagine it was the same back then as it is now. You don't know what state a random woman is in. She knows, but you don't. And it's none of your business, quite frankly. So it's up to her to maintain the separation when that's appropriate. As I say, there's all sorts of instructions about blood in the Torah, so I'm not really sure what the deal is here. It could be all of the above. And then uh, from what is strangled, and that talks about kosher killing and from sexual immorality. So. That is the set of instructions to newly believing Gentiles. As I see it, this is a continuation and extension of Peter and the sheep. And this whole process is by way of God setting out for the Jews the minimum standards that Gentiles are expected to meet with respect to behavior once they enter the kingdom of God. Having shrimp cocktail for lunch doesn't disqualify a Gentile, nor does not being circumcised. It's it's the same argument either way. Because in both cases, what's happened is the Holy Spirit has jumped over the Jewish authorities and said, 
I approve these folks. Now, you, you guys go ahead and back up and fill out the paperwork, but I approve these folks and start from that point as opposed to starting from your point and working toward them. Start from the point that they are accepted by God and you work back and fill in the forms. Clean up the details. And that's what's happened here. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. See, notice, go down from Jerusalem to Antioch, even though they're heading north. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So I'm going to stop here because I want to talk about Paul and Barnabas and their separation and John Mark and some other stuff. And there's, there's more than five minutes worth of stuff to say there.